Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Pretty good. So have you read it yet? I did. You did? And, um, <clears throat> You're one yeah. step ahead of me. I've only heard well, about it, but I haven't read well, it. <clears throat> between my uh, trips to the jail and trips to court and um, uh, talking to clients, um, yes, I managed to squeeze in some uh, some reading about the future of Gilead and... Um, um, for those that aren't uh, aware, that is the reference to the, um, uh, <laughs> the Handmaid's Tale um, dystopian future world. But, um, yes. but I, I, and I've also listened to a lot of commentary about it. And um, what I read was one of the most severe um, judicial opinions I've ever read. Now, mm. now, this is a first draft. It's marked as a first draft, and it's four months old. And so <clears throat> it might be that this is a um, just, just – well, we just launched right into this, and we should maybe tell people exactly what we're talking about. Even oh, yeah, we're Roe. talking about Roe versus Wade. And we're talking <laughs> about Wade. The, the draft opinion that was released – or, well, leaked to Politico <clears throat> um, and published Monday night – uh, and uh, which overturns Roe versus Wade. It's in the uh, decision Dobbs versus Women's Health Clinic. Um, and so, and, and it's out of Mississippi, and it's about the Mississippi law that bans abortion at 15 weeks, which was <clears throat> purposely done by the state to, um, uh, to set up a direct challenge to Roe. Okay, there was no... There was no in my understanding, John, is that this is one of the most restrictive versions of uh, the various issues that are out there because there's no exception for incest or rape or anything like that. There's just a, a strict uh, time limit, and that's that. Right. So it might do well to start with... Um, uh, some things that will spark some conversation with us. So with your permission, sir, I will oh, read, yes. I will read, <laughs> I will read. You're so, you know, just understanding and accommodating, sir. <laughs> um, I will read some of the actual opinion, some of the significant portions of it. Um, and uh, they start off with, um, he starts off, I should say, this is Sam Alito talking Um and he starts off talking about um, sort of criticizing Roe um, just on its face, right? And uh, and he starts off talking by, and I'll summarize some of it and I'll read some of it. <clears throat> but he starts off like right at the beginning, just right out of the gate, um, talking about how for the first 80, 185 years after the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address this issue in accordance with the view of its citizens. And then in 1973, um, the court, this court decided Roe versus Wade, even though the Constitution made no mention of abortion. Okay. And so um, the opinion concluded with a number of set of rules, much like those that might be found in a statute enacted by a legislature. So you can see where he's going with this. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, quote, at the time of Roe, 30 states still have prohibited abortion at all stages. In the years in the years prior to that decision, about a third of the states had liberalized their views, but Roe abruptly ended that political process. <clears throat> Again, this is where he's kind of going, where 
he's going to say that we should let the states decide. Right. Um, and like the, tenth, uh, the 10th Amendment, right? Isn't that what we're talking the about? The 9th, actually. Um, quote, as Justice Byron Wright aptly put in his dissent of Roe, the decision represented the, quote, exercise of raw judicial power, end quote. And then he writes, and it sparked the national controversy that has embittered our political culture for half a century. Um, and then he goes on to talk about Casey uh, and how Americans continue to have divergent views on abortion. And um, and then he just launches right it. And this is on page five of the decision of a 60, 70 page decision. Um, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Casey was a case 10 years after Roe, which um, upheld Roe, but modified it somewhat. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly, chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And uh, he says the right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. <clears throat> and he goes on about how abortion is very different than other rights protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which, by the way, um, a, is a something called substantive due process, and that is that it's an actual right instead of a procedural thing within the law, like well, say Miranda or something like that. Let, let me let me just chime in here for one second. Yeah, um, isn't, isn't that also where we find the concept of you know the the broader principle of the right to privacy? Because well, that that that's not in the Constitution either. That's but, exactly right. In fact. That goes back to a case called Griswold versus Connecticut in 1968, and that's exactly what it was. And, and it was it was the court finding that there is a right to privacy, and it was Griswold that Roe was based on. And in Griswold, that involved the right of married couples to use contraception because there were states that that prohibited anybody yeah. anybody using contraception. So. Um, and and so the, this this opinion, and you know, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but as it goes on, he talks about all of the rights, like um, uh, like the con um, excuse me, the contraception, um, things like um, uh, things that postdated Roe, things like um, Obergefell, which uh, allowed same-sex marriage. Um, Lawrence v. Texas, which um, uh, struck down a law that prohibited um, uh, gay sex between men, um, and sodomy laws is what they were referred to as. And so he, he, he tries to distinguish some of these rights um, that are 14th Amendment based and say, they're fine, we're not going to touch them. It's just abortion is different because it involves the death of a fetus, right? And but the truth is, is if you read this opinion with any sort of clarity, um, all of those other rights are basically on the chopping block. Yeah, because the way that he is um, really um, 
I, I guess, stripping bare the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, <clears throat> um, uh, all of them are in play and, um, and are almost like, if you read this, it's almost like they have to be, if this is going to be the law, they have to be reversed. Obergefell, um, gay marriage, um, contraception, um, laws against sodomy. Uh, you know, we can go down the list. There's a bunch more that are listed here, which I won't go into. But the 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 point is, is that this is, um, if this opinion would be like the final version, um, it would be the most drastic, probably, um, and harsh Supreme Court opinion in the history of the court. Um, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> you mean, you think uh, worse than um, the... Uh, oh, well, Dred Scott, yeah, or something Dred like Scott, that. But, yeah, well, well, that one too. It, it was, could be right up there with it. It would be right up there with it, yeah. And and um, certainly in the modern era, um, and that is to say the last, you know, uh, 50 years or so. And so, you know, but to be clear... Um, as you know, as, as a, somebody who's done a lot of legal writing and any student knows, you know, your first draft, and it was marked as a first draft. Um, so it came out on February 10th of this year, and the oral arguments were in December 10th. So it was about two months that he had to write this. And um, it's very, very lengthy. And right. um, he tries to get into, like, the fact that, you know, um, uh, that, you know, back in the 1800s when the 14th Amendment was passed and adopted, um, you know, there was all these states that had anti-abortion laws, you know, and, and he's like, well, then it's not I for you. We have one. <laughs> yeah, it's still in the books. And, and, the, and, and, and I guess, you know, the first thing that jumps to my mind is, okay, well, um, also women were not allowed to vote and they were basically property of men. Um, you know, or their husbands at least. And yeah, maybe uh, we'll go back to that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's why I made the Gilead reference. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, we do have to take a break, but we'll come back and continue the discussion right after these messages. We're back with more. We are. Defense in Gilead, Wisconsin. No. <laughs> hey, uh, John, uh, just since you've dominated the conversation so far, I do want to chime in just a little bit here. And there was a a great uh, commentary in The New Yorker, which I'm sure you read. I read it religiously, um, as well as The New York Times. I don't I don't know why those are my two go to sources, but they just are. Maybe because you so, were. You you were born in Buffalo, New York. I don't know. That's true. Well, I was born in California, but I grew up in Buffalo. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I will. But I do love all things East Coast. I will admit. Um, all right. So, a staff writer for the New Yorker, Jill Lepore, um, put out an article in the New Yorker earlier this week, and this is, I think, this hits it on the head uh, and follows up with what you were just talking about before the break. But the title of the article is Why There Are No Women in the Constitution. There is little mention of abortion in a 4,000-word document crafted by 55 men in 1787. This seems to be a surprise to Samuel Alito. <laughs> women are indeed missing from the Constitution, as Justice Samuel Alito's leaked draft opinion suggests. That's a problem to remedy, not a precedent to honor. So here's what she goes on to say. Within a matter of months, women in about half of the United States 
may be breaking the law if they decided to end a pregnancy. This will be in large part because Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito is surprised that there is so little written about abortion in a 4,000-word document crafted by 55 men in 1787. As it happens, there's also nothing at all in that document which sets out fundamental law about pregnancy, uteruses, fetuses, placentas, menstrual blood, breasts, breast milk. There's nothing in that document about women at all. And consequently, there is nothing in that document or in the circumstances under which it was written that suggests its authors imagined women as part of the political community embraced by the phrase, quote, we the people. There were no women among the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. There were no women among the hundreds of people who participated in ratifying conventions in the states. There were no women judges. There were no women legislators. At the time, women could neither hold office nor run for office. And except in New Jersey, and then only fleetingly, women could not vote. Legally, most women did not exist. Because these facts appear to surprise Alito, abortion is likely to become a crime in at least 20 states this spring. So, wow, hitting it on the head in terms of the, the far reach, that's the logic behind, as you said, it starts on page five, this analysis of the lack of mention of abortion in the Constitution where women weren't even people and black people were, what, three-fifths of a people, you know, so, so this, <laughs> and none of them could vote. You know? this, this raises a very interesting question because this whole it's not in the Constitution trope is a favorite among conservative legal scholars. And um, uh, and it goes to two things. And there's two there, there are two favorites of the uh, conservative um, legal minds. And that is one is originalism and the second is textualism. And as much as I am more of a living constitution, like I think the constitution needs to um, be a source of um, expansion of rights and expansion right. of liberty. Well, the survival of the constitution depends on that because yeah. there were there was no internet or cars or airplanes or yeah. you know guns like the what we have now. I mean, it's you have to look at principles. And so, originalism though stands for the proposition that we can only interpret the Constitution with what the 55 men in 1787 thought about what they wrote. And, or maybe the, you know, whatever number of men that decided to pass the 14th Amendment um, thought about the due process clause of that amendment. So, and that's just like, um, I guess on one level, it's patently ridiculous because um, there's no way, as you just pointed out, that, um, uh, that, 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 that they could be so, you know, have such great foresight that they would see that there was cars and planes and internet and, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, medical science where that doubled our, uh, that doubled our lifespan, you know? Right, and, right. Um, you know, yeah, so, I mean, they could have put in there that people only have the right to live to age 38 if they want <laughs> well that's why you know honestly honestly that's why they made the age 35 to run for president because people didn't live that long living to 50 was a big deal you know right. the average the average lifespan worldwide until you know all through the 1800s was about 35 years 
Right. So, you know, um, and so, you know, the, the, <laughs> I think the civil war had something to do with cutting down that, you know, that general <laughs> life expectancy in our country. Oh, well, yeah, well, this yeah, civil war is a problem, but that's <laughs> a different time, different topic. But uh, and so, you know, all of these, um, uh, you know, I think. You know, love him or, or, or not, uh, President Biden had some, I thought, some pretty wise and uh, prescient words to say about this um, uh, opinion. And uh, he hearkened back when he was a senator and chairman of the Judiciary Committee when Robert Bork was uh, nominated. And, um, and of course, that was a, you know, you know, the, the, sort of the beginning of the uh, end of civility in terms of Supreme Court hearings, and, um, and well, he was kind of kooky. I mean, well, he, he, well, he was, and he he mentioned though in his in his remarks that you know what Bork thought that all rights were given by the government and to us, and he pointed out, which I agree with, is that rights. Are what we are, we as humans just deserve as existing humans, and that the government can only do what we say it can do. In other words, they don't just give us these rights. Right. We, we just have. So we don't start off with zero rights and we get whatever they give us. You know, right. as a on top of zero. In fact, the, the 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 body of the Constitution says, okay. You know, executive branch, you can do this. Congress, you can do this. Judicial, you know, well, you exist. Okay. Well, um, and, and also, John, go back to the Declaration of Independence that talks about inalienable rights. Well, that's exactly right. And if you look at the Bill of Rights, well, it's a Bill of Rights, as it's called, but it's mainly a restrictive document saying Congress, the government cannot do right. this. Like rights they, exist and then cannot, restrictions yeah. on what the, the government can do to take those right. away. So we automatically have the right to free speech and the right to oppress and the right to assemble and the right to practice religion. And um, and what the amendments say isn't that we have those rights. The amendments say you cannot interfere with those rights, government. Right. They already exist. It, the, the, ba so, the baseline is they're there. And so Samuel Alito apparently does not believe in that at all. And um, this opinion reads like um, uh, an angry white mega guy. Um, <laughs> it really does. And well, and, um, okay, let's just pause for a second because right. I, I'm not sure many people, um, except those that are in the know, deeply in the know, understand how uh, Supreme Court opinions are written and. I'll tell you one thing, Samuel Alito did not sit down with a Sylvania typewriter and start, you know, typing away to make this rough draft. Um, it's a very, very complicated process, and it has to do with clerks that work for uh, the Supreme Court and justices that recruit them to be part of their, um, you know, intellectual brain power of the whole thing. And the way it normally works is that justices will talk about, you know, they have these conferences where they will, they will go in the round and have their clerks sort of debate whether a case is worthy of granting certiorari. And that's kind of like the daily business of the Supreme court and 
something like that percent of cases they just decide not to take. But the ones that they consider taking normally go through a number of conferences. Um, you know, uh, most cases I think go through five or six uh, judicial conferences before there's a decision about whether to grant certiorari. Just to but, be clear, it only takes four justices to grant cert. Correct. Correct. So, and, and, and again, getting a case to the United States Supreme Court is not something that any party or citizen has as a matter of right. It's a discretionary review, which is actually a good thing because if not for that, we would have to have thousands of people employed <laughs> and, uh, you know, who knows how many justices, if it was something that had to be reviewed every single time someone brought a case before the court. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to pause there because our commercial sponsors are knocking at the door and we need to let them in. So is that what, is that, what that noise was? Okay. Yeah. You heard the knocking, right? Yep. Right. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we have survived the commercials. I don't Very know why right. I always say that. Like it's a tortuous thing. It's not. It's not. It's, it's not. It's a it's delightful. Loyal. Yeah. It's delightful. It's yeah. capitalism in full bloom. Yeah. Well, and public service announcements, of course. And, yes, of course. Yes. All right. So, so I wanted to kind of uh, branch into, you know, we were talking about how these decisions, well, draft decisions are made. And I was talking about before the break, how there are numerous people, not, not Sam Alito himself, like typing it up, but um, also uh, there has been a, a very successful effort over the, you know, decades, many decades of keeping this process very secret. And the thing that is making news about this is not only the fact that this is an earth shattering and profound legal document that may turn into an actual opinion, but also the fact that it was leaked. So uh, from what I understand, the authenticity of the draft opinion has been verified by Justice Stevens. However, um, Roberts. Roberts, I'm sorry, Roberts. Yep. Boop. Messed up there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, right. Wrong guy. So it, it is in the process of an investigation to figure out how this got put out to the public because that's not supposed to happen. So, you know, just to kind of like uh, tie off the process. So once cert is granted, certiorari is the actual term, but it's commonly known as cert. Once cert is granted, which means that they're going to take the case up, the case is set for briefing. And so the person that appealed gets to file their first brief, and that's called a brief on the merits, and then the opposite side responds, and then the, uh, the appealing party replies. Right. And in the meantime... Usually, there's a bunch of groups, in, at least in major cases, amicus. that want to file friends of the court brief. They're called amicus briefs. And um, so, you know, in this case, it'd be like the right to life groups and, you know, the, the, the right to choice groups. And, um, you know, um, 26 states um, got together and filed, um, uh, filed motions. And, and, I, and I looked through a good deal of them. And, um, and the same thing happened on every single major case that was in this term, the, the, the New York gun case, et cetera, et cetera. And so then, then they have oral arguments. And the oral arguments are really you would think that they're asking questions of the lawyers because they're trying to educate themselves about the case. But the truth is, is that 
the justices are really trying to talk to each other through the lawyers. And so mm -hmm. if you listen to some of these, what the, their questions are trying to um, expand on what they talked about in private. And that's why it's such a fascinating uh, procedure, this oral argument procedure, is because um, that's a glimpse into what they're talking about in that secret, you know, cabal sort of um, <laughs> situation that you described, right? And um, uh, and so that, and one of the things that I th I think is um, interesting for us to ponder and for people to know is that all these rules, the secrecy is is basically a tradition, but it's also a Supreme Court rule. Um, and, um, uh, but all the rules, all the way the court functions, all the powers that it has said that it has and judicial review chief among them um, is, are all made up by the court. There was no act of right. Congress that says, Hey, Supreme court, you get to tell us what the law is. No, the Supreme court said that in 1803. And it's been like right. that. No, it's 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 the legacy of the Marshall Court that that yeah. um, in order and, to balance the three branches of government. And so every and that's sort of the problem is that all of these um, ways that they act and the and the, the opinions that they hand down are all developed by out of their own you know sort of like kind of sense of what should happen, right? All, all Every single justice that gets up in front of a Supreme Court nomination hearing says, oh, I'm not going to, you know, oh, right. <laughs> I'm not going to be driven by what they result. I was, I was hoping that you would bring that up because every single justice law. that's on the court right now answered that question mm -hmm. and during their confirmation hearing uh, as though to respect stare decisis and right. precedent as to say, you know, Roe versus Wade is law. It cannot be disturbed. Yeah. Including and, Sam Alito. In, including Sam Alito and um, Kavanaugh and Barrett and um, and Gorsuch. And uh, and it's, I don't know if it came up with Thomas, but anyway, it's, 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 it's pure fantasy that um, the justices don't care what the result is. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's nonsense. They care very much. In fact, I'll tell you, we have one justice close to home, uh, Rebecca um, Dallet, mm -hmm. who who broke the mold on that whole, you know, oh, I just follow the law and apply the facts and blah, 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 right? All that nonsense. She said no. In her campaign, she was very honest with voters. She says, values matter. And the value of a human being that takes this job matters. And she harped on that. And I had so much respect, and even if she had been like an arch conservative that I didn't want to vote for, right? <laughs> I would still respect right. that. She didn't. Honestly. She didn't sing the same song, you know. She no. didn't have the same mantra that she was being is the safe answer, right? So and so, what I what I'm concerned about um, is the credibility of the court, and I think John Roberts is very concerned about that right now. Very concerned because um, they only have the power of their own legitimacy. And if they are seen as political hacks, as Justice Barrett said in a speech last summer, um, then then they really don't have much. You know, this we can hearken back to the 1830s when the um, Cherokee Nation 
won a case in the Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court says you are a nation, you can negotiate. <laughs> you, treaties you look like one and you act like one. Isn't that kind of what it was? Yep, you can negotiate treaties with the United States. And so, therefore, you know, uh, they can't do this Indian removal that uh, Andrew Jackson wanted to do. And Andrew Jackson, the president of the United States, says, hey, that's cute. Um, that's a nice opinion. Let, now let's see him enforce it. Right. And so he just went ahead with it anyways, the Trail of Tears. Hey, is, it, is it true or not that he sent a uh, uh, a gift of a, a blanket infected with smallpox? I, I don't know if that's uh um, legend so, or no that that <laughs> happened but i don't know that it was the president that, that <laughs> um, um but that Terrible. did that did in fact happen um it's awful it's awful um so you know i i guess the point is is that you know courts don't have armies they don't have enforcement mechanisms they don't have police forces they don't have you know investigative arms um to enforce their rulings they have only um, their own goodwill and our trust in them. And it, that seems to be eroding pretty bad. And if this is, even even if it's all the rough edges are rounded out in the final opinion, if it comes down with the same result, um, we wow. got a problem. We got a real problem. Uh, yeah. We, well, and that's what I want to move into next is because the ramifications of this, as you were alluding to earlier, um, so many of our implied rights, and I know that's the wrong word to use, but that's pretty much how it gets described because of the fact that they're not enumerated in the Constitution, but referenced in the Bill of Rights, um, you know, stem from the 14th Amendment and the recognition of the fact that there are things beyond just what we specifically talk about in the Constitution. So, one of those, although it's, it's kind of a hybrid, because the Sixth Amendment refers to the right to counsel, but it only talks about the fact that someone has a right to counsel. It doesn't say who or what or how. And by virtue of the 14th Amendment, this is how we arrived at Gideon versus Wainwright, because mm -hmm. in order to make that a meaningful right, the right to counsel, it has to be applied in such a way that it is truly a constitutional, you know, inalienable right uh, in spite of the problems and hurdles that are put up by the individual processes. So that, so the law of the land for good God, I mean, you know, what, 80 years now, 75 years has been that uh, indigent people have the right to counsel and that's tied in with exactly what we're talking about. So that, that's a huge deal if there's a potential for the erosion of our respect for that right. And, and it goes way beyond just at trial. It has to do with Miranda versus Arizona and other all the other cases that deal with the police having to respect someone's right to counsel, the right to you know remain silent, and all the permutations that come from the Bill of Rights. But I'm going to ask for your response as soon as we come back after these messages, John. We are back. Hey, John, did you, did you celebrate Star Wars Day earlier this week? I did not know that existed. It was May the 4th. Like, May the 4th be with you, you know? And then the day after that was Cinco de Mayo. Like, all these holidays that we can just celebrate, you know, stuff. 
Um, yeah, um, Cinco de Mayo always amused me because, you know, uh, I'll never forget this um, GIF I saw. It was like, hey, here's like um, uh, Republicans uh, the day before um, Cinco de Mayo and then show them like, build the wall, build the wall. And then the second thing is that it's like on Cinco de Mayo, they're like, all right, more, more tequila. You know? More tequila. <laughs> Let the tequila through the wall. <laughs> But um, so anyway, yeah, we're we've been talking about the um, very significant leak of information that is the draft opinion by Samuel Alito, Justice Alito, that would appear to completely extinguish um, the right of free choice for women in this country to have their own self determination as it relates to their medical health. Um, and we were getting into what this could mean if, if in fact this decision is becomes law, the law of the land, where this goes beyond. And I started getting into perhaps it could even go as far as affecting things like Gideon, the Gideon mm -hmm. case. What do you think about that? John? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, um, if you look at the arc of the Supreme Court in the 20th century, this is this anti-abortion backlash that started in 1973 with Roe was really just the um, end of an era of um, cataclysmic cases, starting with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. So for nearly 20 years, there was this, and it was the Warren Court, of course, um, there was this uh, propensity by the Supreme Court to um, uh, come down with these really striking and wide-sweeping cases. So Brown and Miranda and um, uh, Gideon and, uh, you know. And, but, but, and but all, of those, all of those were meant to give life to and meaning to constitutional principles. That's, what, that's I am why not, they happened. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying. Oh, I know that. I know. They were viewed by those in the conservative movement as sort of um, uh, not favorable to their movement because they were expanding rights and they didn't want to expand rights. They wanted to. Right. Well, I, I would love to hear one of those people that opposed Brown versus board of education, try and justify the current. I mean, that, that that's just insane because <laughs> And it's one of the most fundamental decisions in our history because of the fact that it talk it gives life to the statutes and our constitutional principles where it, where it actually has effect and meaning. It's not just words. It, yeah. it affects people's lives. So, yeah, the, and what I was making the point was that this two-decade period was viewed as um, an out-of-control judiciary. Right, like an... Right? Yeah. And um, judicial and activism. They, That's they, they right. Right. And you know what? Every judge is a judicial activist. You have to. Be. This, this decision, if it goes through, is judicial activism. It certainly is. And so um, and so uh, that that's just a that's just a silly trope. That's just something to kind of gaslight people to, you know, you know, to kind of believe whatever they want to believe. This that's is the easy answer. Like I read the law and whatever it says, it says that's, yeah, you know, right. So, <laughs> so I think that um, 
there's there's so much politics going on with this issue and with this court. And so all, despite their protestations that they're not political and they're, they're viewed more and more as basically politicians in, in black robes. And part of that is their quote unquote emergency docket, also known as the shadow docket, where they issue sweeping decisions without any briefing, without any arguments. And they did this at an alarmingly increased rate, starting with the Trump administration. And so that's part of the reason that people are losing faith in this court. And I think John Roberts is kind of like losing control, you know, as he should be as the chief justice um, of how the court is viewed. And that's his primary, you know, uh, role um, as, as it should be, you know, and I admire his uh, attempts to, you know, maintain that legitimacy. And that's because it's a very difficult position, especially with some of the folks on the court. But by the way, there, there is a theory out there that the leaking of this draft opinion uh, may be designed to put pressure on Roberts because um, it's, it's unknown, I suppose, uh, where he would come down on this decision. Have you heard that little? I, I've heard something similar. So there's two main theories, and they're just theories because we have no idea. But one is that somebody who's a progressive, either justice or law clerk, leaked this in the hopes of, you know, creating this backlash where people would back down and then they wouldn't reverse row, which I think is a weak argument because that seems very unlikely to happen. The other theory is that somebody on the right, either a conservative justice or a law clerk, leaked it. I believe that. Order, I, I think it's much more likely. That's immediately what I thought. Right. And with the idea that, if some like one of the justices I feel like was wavering, like they had five and they wanted six, but they had five and they We're were Roberts. about to lose. It's gotta be Roberts, right? Well, it's either Roberts or it's it's probably it's it's probably like Kavanaugh, I would think. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> I doubt it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know. But but that's at least the theory is that one of them was trying to waver, and so if they released this original draft if that person then doesn't vote to overturn Roe, they're going to be blamed as the person that blew this golden opportunity that the conservative legal movement have been working for for almost 50 years. And you got to give it to the Federalist Society and, you know, conservative politics and conservative legal scholars. They have been like, Boy, they have they have been so focused on this moment. Oh, I, I have a funny story to tell you. By the way, when I was in law school, I I unfortunately didn't know what the Federalist Society was all about, but I did know the Federalist. So you joined? No, I went to a meeting, and uh, I thought, oh, what's this all about? You know, because when you're getting it, going through your law school curriculum, and there's all sorts of different activities and things. So I went to a meeting of this group and I was thinking, oh, these are like, you know, the Hamiltonians of the world. I don't know. But uh, it was shocking <laughs> what it was actually all about. So I, I did not become a, a member of the Federalist Society. I don't know if you ever did, but you I were did. actually a, you were a conservative uh, fellow in an earlier life, as I understand I, it. I, I was in, uh, in the 80s. I was uh uh, very much so, even through law school. Um, that changed when I started doing criminal defense and I saw what was really going on. But right. um, 
But you, you remember in 2018 when I went to the Wisconsin Supreme Court to argue about the pay rates for um, assigned counsel for indigent people and all of that. So part of my um, strategy was to I had to I had to talk to the uh, conservative justices on our court, mm-hmm. right. and because it was not a case, it was a petition. I was allowed to talk to them directly about it, um, as opposed to a case. You can't do that. You you can only talk through your right. brief. Yeah, it had to do with a, a rule petition, right? Yeah. So so I actually sat down with them, and what I did was I joined the Federal Society, and I went to their meetings because I knew they'd all be there. <laughs> and so they were all there, and I got to sit down with them in the hallway and pitch them for as long as they would listen to me. And they were very nice and very respectful, and they listened. And, and I went to all the meetings, and, you know, and there was there was some – you know, uh, it was an interesting. Uh, Did you get a pin or a certificate or a trophy or anything no, like from the I, Federalist Society? I think I could have gotten one, but I didn't ask. I, yeah, like a T-shirt, coffee <laughs> mug. <laughs> I'm still on their email list because I want to see what they're talking about. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. And a lot of it has to do with. Oh, they're like, probably going nuts about this stuff. So I mean, like in a good way, like for that. Well, you know what? Here's the here's the interesting part. You saw the eruption of protest uh, in front of the court and, um, yes. you know, by all the people that are pro-choice. Yes. What all you've heard from the conservative side is the complaints about the leak. Right. And that's why I think and that's why I think that um, the conservative uh, leaked this, because now they can diffuse the anger early on pre-release. Blame the leak. And. <laughs> And and just say and and like let the energy peter out, and so when the actual opinion comes out, everybody's going to be kind of relieved, and everything's going to yeah. be fine. Well, dude, I wish our show was two hours, three maybe three hours, could be four hours long. Who knows? You know what? But it's only an hour. Talk to the station. So Talk to the radio. We gotta, yeah. Well, we'll see what we can do about it. <laughs> anyway, we got to wrap it up because we got to make way for the next show and. We'll talk to you next week as you can tune in every week right here on 1330, 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Have a great one.